this uh, lecture. I've got a little statement I'm going to read so that I don't sound too silly. The Samuel Newton lect Taylor Lecture Endowment supports lectures and colloquia from preeminent scholars in the sciences who, in particular, are recognized for their ability to make their field understandable to the intelligent layperson. The subject of intelligent design and the controversy surrounding its introduction into school curricula is of nearly universal interest, having been covered by top science journals, professional and educational societies, dozens of books, and countless news organizations. However, it is also such a polarizing and conflict-laden topic that understanding this debate often requires just the sort of speaker that Dr. Taylor envisioned when he endowed this lectureship. We're therefore very pleased to welcome Eugenie Scott of the National Center for Science Education as this year's Samuel Newton Taylor Lecturer. It is now my great pleasure to welcome Mira Anderson, the president of our physics club, and Leah Couture, the president of the chemistry club and vice president of the biology club. Strike that, reverse it. Who will introduce today's speaker? today to welcome Dr. Eugenie Scott to Goucher College. Dr. Scott earned her PhD in Biological Anthropology from the University of Missouri at Columbia. And since 1987, she has been the Executive Director of the National Center for Science Education. With over 4,000 members across the country, this nonprofit organization works with parents, schools, and concerned citizens to defend science education in local, state, and national levels. Wherever edu evolution education is under attack by creationalist thinking, explain the 2006 edition of the Scientific America, Eugenie Scott will be there to defend science with rationality and resolve. For her selfless dedication to the defense of science over the last 20 years, Dr. Scott has received national recognition from the National Science Board, the American Society for Cell Biology, the American Institute of Biological Sciences, the Geological Society of America, the American Humanist Association, the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences, the California Science Teachers Association, and the National Association of Biology Teachers, to name but a few. Today, she will talk to us about the history and controversy of creationism and intelligent design and education. It is my great privilege, privilege to present to you Dr. Eugenie Scott. Well, good afternoon. Er, nah, it's evening. Good evening. You know, the United States is a unique nation, and we are very different from many other countries. And sometimes we're different in a way that maybe we didn't especially want to be. In this survey that was done, in this research that was reported in Science Magazine last summer, I want to uh, blow up that um, chart down below so that you don't strain your eyes trying to read the, the small task. A question was asked of citizens around the world. Humans evolved from earlier forms of animal, true or false? The blue represents yes, the red represents no, the yellow represents not sure. The United States? We beat Turkey. <laughs> now, now, this is not the kind of, of position I think we really want to be in on most statistics. And 
It is very odd that the United States, among so many developed nations, has this peculiarity of a high percentage of citizens rejecting the idea of evolution, which the National Academy of Sciences has described as one of the best tested and most well corroborated theories in science. So what is evolution anyway? Uh, I have found that it's a useful thing to talk about what evolution is because many people really don't know what evolution is. They think evolution is man evolved from monkeys. <laughs> now, what's wrong with this picture? A, that's not a man. Uh, we assume that in the phrase man evolved from monkeys, what we're really talking about is human beings evolved from monkeys. And, and there's something else wrong with this picture as well. I'll give you a hint. That's not a monkey. This is a monkey, okay? That's an ape. And man did not evolve from monkeys. Man did not evolve from apes. And I will get around to what I mean by that in a moment. Actually, what evolution is, is a very basic idea of science, a very general principle that cuts across all of the sciences, not just man evolved from monkeys. And in fact, astronomy is an evolutionary science, which is one reason why the astronomy department is sponsoring this talk. Galaxies evolved, the universe as a whole evolved, stars evolved, um, the solar system in which we uh, find our own planet, all of these have changed cumulatively through time. And the big idea of evolution has to do with this idea of cumulative change through time. And it's relevant to astronomy, it's relevant to geology, because the planet Earth has changed cumulatively through time. Clearly it's relevant to the topic of biology, and it's also relevant to the anthropological science as well because human cultures have also changed cumulatively through time. <clears throat> In, I'm going to concentrate today on biological evolution because this seems to be the aspect of evolution that causes the most difficulty in this country, but as you will see, not only uh, biological evolution, geological and astronomical evolution are rejected by many people as well. But in biological evolution, the big idea here is that living things shared common ancestors. In Darwin's terms, they have descended with modification from common ancestors. And this common ancestry is really the big idea of biological evolution. And descent with modification sounds like this kind of strange 19th century term, <clears throat> but it's a concept that you really are quite familiar with because you have descended with modification from ancestors as well, just as have I. So my sister Sue and I, are the children of my father. And Grandpa is also the father of Uncle John, and Uncle John is the parent of Cousin Liz. Now, Sue and I look more like each other than we look like Cousin Liz, because Sue and I shared a common ancestor in Dad more recently than we shared a common ancestor with Liz with Grandpa. So the more similar Excuse me, the more recent the common ancestor, the more similar the descendants. That's a concept that you understand, I think, just intuitively, because you all have brothers and sisters and cousins and other people who are related to you. <clears throat> Sue and I and Liz all look more like each other than we look like Mira, even though at some point we share a common ancestor with Mira, we share a common ancestor with each other and Grandpa more recently than we share that hypothetical common ancestor with Mira, someplace along the line. And it works the same way with biological organisms. So bears and dogs look a lot more like each other than they look like lions. 
because bears and dogs shared a common dog-like ancestor with each other more recently than they shared a common carnivore ancestor with the felids. And similarly, Cebus and howler monkeys are more similar to each other than they are to apes because they shared a common monkey-like ancestor with each other more recently than they shared a common primate ancestor with apes. But bears and monkeys look more like each other than they look like salamanders because carnivores and primates shared a common mammal ancestor with each other more recently than they shared a common vertebrate ancestor with salamanders. The more recent the common ancestor, the more similar the organisms. Which, by the way, is probably not what you learned in high school. What you learned in high school, unfortunately, was the more similar they are, the more we classify them together. Wrong. The more recently they had a common ancestor, the more similar they are. And classification nowadays in modern biology is really based on this principle of common ancestry. Though reading a lot of high school textbooks, you wouldn't necessarily know that, unfortunately. <clears throat> so descent with modification is really what evolution is, biological evolution is all about. And descent with modification generates trees. It generates these branching structures, such as you see in the diagram, and what your own pedigree is like. Uh, that's also a branching kind of structure. But most people, unfortunately, understand, understand evolution not so much as a tree, but as a ladder. The great chain of being, the ladder of life. So starting from the simple invertebrates, you go to more complicated invertebrates, and then you go to simple vertebrates, and fish give rise to amphibians, give rise to reptiles, give rise to simple mammals, give rise to more complex mammals, and finally, of course, you get human beings at the end. <laughs> this didn't happen. This is not what evolution is all about. Evolution is not about ladders. Evolution is not about chains. Evolution is about trees. It's about branching and splitting of populations through time as the populations adapt to their environments and over long periods of geological time eventually, um, <clears throat> eventually uh, become different from one another. But the idea of ladders and the idea of trees, uh, converting the idea of ladders, converting the idea of this great chain of being is, is very difficult to convert to the idea of this branching and splitting process, which is what we know evolution is all about. You ever hear about the missing link? No, the, the idea of missing link comes from this chain idea. Uh, the great chain of being has links that are missing. Well, that's not really what evolution is all about. Let me tell you what evolution really is all about. Of course, the first creatures that we know of on the planet Earth were single-celled organisms. We have some fossil evidence of very primitive single-celled organisms. There is a transition from single-celled to multiple-celled organisms. I'm going to have to skip all that because this actually isn't a lecture on evolution. This is really a lecture on the creation and evolution controversy. But let me give you a, a quick outline of what actually happened in terms of the evolution of metazoa or the multiple-celled organisms. We're going to start with a creature that we'll just call a Precambrian bilaterian. And you're thinking, oh my god, this is going to be a science lecture after all. I've been misled. No, that's not true. This is not that hard. The Cambrian was a period of time about 500 million years ago. Precambrian was a period of time before that. That's not hard. By bilaterian, we mean something that's bilaterally symmetrical, like you. The left side is the same as the right side. That's what bilaterally symmetrical means. And these first bilateral creatures that we find in the fossil record, 
are very simple. They had a left side and a right side. They had a mouth and an anus, and that's about it. They were very simple kinds of creatures. We don't have their fossils, but we have the fossils of the burrows that they left. And mm -hmm. we know that there were these creatures in the Precambrian that were bilaterally symmetrical. And that's a very, very important evolutionary development because most of the organisms that we are familiar with, other than bacteria, uh, which is most of the organisms actually, it's a bacterial world. Um, you know, all these people uh, using bacterial soaps and getting all paranoid about, oh, you know, bacteria, so find a new planet because this is, this is, this is Earth. We got bacteria out the wazoo here, and, and so don't worry about bacteria. They're all over the place. But we're going to talk about the multiple-celled organisms. We're going to talk about these bilaterally symmetrical organisms, which are much more familiar to us. Basically, this pre-Cambrian bilaterian branched in three ways. The first branch consisted of the arthropods and their relatives. The arthropods, you know, are as the, um, the insects, the um, uh, crustaceans, the... Um, um, spiders and so forth, um, not modern-day crustaceans, not modern-day arthropods, but very primitive arthropods. But I'm showing you a picture of a modern one because you're going to be more familiar with that. A second branch had to do with the annelids, or the segmented worms and their relatives. Again, not looking like modern segmented worms, very primitive segmented worms. But then they gave rise to the more complicated worm uh, uh, and relatives of worms that we have today. And the third group, are the chordates and their relatives. Now the chordates are kind of an interesting bunch to us because we are uh, chordates, so we are a type of chordate called a vertebrate. Uh, chordates, actually the first chordates that we find didn't look a heck of a lot different from that pre-Cambrian bilaterian in a lot of ways. They were left and right, bilaterally symmetrical, they had a mouth and an anus. They were a little bit fancier in the sense that they had these um, segmented muscle layers and they had a, a light gathering structure at the front end which we'll call the front end because that's where the mouth was um, something like an eye uh, but they were still pretty primitive you can see how going from that precambrian bilaterian to the early chordates wasn't a huge jump but these three groups of organisms um, are basic body plans from which you get a whole lot more evolution. Now we're going to follow the chordates down because as vertebrates we're particularly interested in that. The vertebrates are chordates that have a solid um, backbone, not just a stiffening rod like a chordate does, but an actual um, backbone. They're a segmented uh, form of, of uh, cartilage and bone. And that's the, those are the ancestors of us. These were, of course, marine forms. These were forms that lived in water. And it was, and this early form of chordate, the early form of vertebrate, I should say, branched into the familiar fish, the ray finned fish, which are very um, uh, highly evolved creatures. These are very fancy vertebrates. They are not primitive at all. If you want primitive, you have to go back to some of these early chordates. But fish, as we see them today, goldfish and other fish that you're familiar with, are a really very, um, very fancy kind of vertebrate. And the other main branch of the vertebrates were called tetrapods. Now, tetrapod is Greek. It means four-footed. These are the land vertebrates. So there was a big branch of these early vertebrate forms into the creatures that we know today as fish, and there's, there's a huge, huge evolution of this lineage here that, that's on the, on the diagram. In fact, fish are the most numerous of all the vertebrates. Uh, we sort of tend to look at the land animals as, as being you know, more interesting to us, but 
the fish outnumber us by, by a, a great deal. Let's take a look at the tetrapod evolution. What happened when this, when this vertebrate form, this evolved chordate as it were, moved on to land? Well, the first vertebrates to move on to land um, didn't look very much like land animals. In fact, we have a wonderful, wonderful series of evolutionary stages of um, creatures that looked very, very fishy up through creatures that looked pretty much like land living forms. They had four legs, um, they, had less, they had a more land animal type tail than a fishy type of tail. Um, but you can see in the, in the fossil record a very clear transition no missing links, okay? A clear transition from aquatic vertebrate to land living vertebrate. Notice I didn't say a transition from fish to amphibian. I said a transition from aquatic vertebrate to terrestrial vertebrate because fish, like ray fin fish, are not what the land vertebrates like us evolved from. So let's go back. What happened to the tetrapods? Well, one branch of tetrapods branched into the creatures that we know as amphibians today, but not something that looked like a, a living frog. These were very primitive amphibians, and they eventually branched into frogs and salamanders and the other kind of, of um, amphibians that we see today. And another branch branched into the reptiles. Again, not something that looked like a modern alligator, but a primitive form of reptile that uh, was able to lay its egg on land and the amniotic egg in general is a very fancy evolutionary development. And eventually this group evolved into um, crocodiles and snakes and the other kinds of, of creatures that we know as modern reptiles. But the early uh, members of this group were very primitive. And then finally you also get a, an evolution a branching into the mammal group. Um, didn't quite get the uh, animation here, but let's take a look at the very um, very primitive mammal. Very primitive mammal was very generalized. Uh, it, it was bilaterally symmetrical, certainly it had a left and a right side, it had a mouth and an anus, but it had all of these other developments that took place in this cascade of evolution from that early Precambrian bilaterian. It had a notochord, it had a vertebrate, um, by the time you, it, it was a tetrapod, it was a land living form, it had four legs rather than um, uh, an aquatic form with, with fins. And by the time you got to this particular radiation of tetrapods, you also got things like warm blood and hair and, and so forth and so on. But it was still very, very simple. It didn't have the kinds of specializations that you see in creatures like wolves or creatures like primates or creatures like rabbits, which have very fancy teeth, by the way. The circle there around the mammal node, as it were, um, represents the fact that the various groups of mammals evolve pretty quickly from this very simple generalized mammalian form. And that is a pattern that you see over and over, and you have seen, or would see if this was a more complete diagram. As it is, heck, it's plenty complicated as, uh, to, to begin with. But in each of these little branchings, you get what's called adaptive radiation. You get the development of a variety of different forms and then the intensification of that particular variant of the body plan as you go on toward the present. Um, note how different this is from um, the, the normal way that people understand evolution as a chain. Um, 
people will say, and, and I'm sure you've heard this, uh, this uh, um, um, sentence if you've ever read any creationist literature, goodness knows I hear it often enough on AM radio talk shows and people will call in and say, I got the question for the evolution lady. If man evolved for monkeys, why are there still monkeys? <laughs> <laughs> this is like saying, I evolved from Cousin Liz. Does it make any sense that I evolved from Cousin Liz? Does it make any sense that I evolved from Sue? No, of course not. Sue and I, none of us could have evolved from each other, of course not, because we all live at the same time. But Sue and I share a common ancestor. Liz and I share a common ancestor. And that's the way it is with humans and chimps and monkeys. A tree-living primate gave rise to early apes and early monkeys. Monkeys are not apes. Monkeys are not the ancestor of apes. There was this original split, just like we saw with mammals, just like we saw with chordates, just like we saw with the other patterns of evolution. A tree-living primate gave rise to a primitive ape and a primitive monkey, and the primitive monkey gave rise eventually to modern monkeys. Early apes gave rise to humans and chimps just like Sue and I and Cousin Liz. So I'm no, more, I'm no more descended from Cousin Liz than we as human beings are descended from monkeys. So of course monkeys are still here. The idea that if man evolved from apes, why are there still apes is a non-question. So how did we get into this situation where a basic idea of science and clearly an idea that is absolutely central to the biological sciences, could be rejected by so many Americans. Well, anti-evolutionism in the United States, like everything else, has a history. And as is fairly common in my line of work, we will begin in the beginning. And of course, the Scopes trial represents the first period of anti-evolutionism in the United States. We can divide anti-evolutionism into three periods. The first period being a period of time in the early 20th century when the effort was made to just ban the teaching of evolution, where evolution simply was struck from the textbooks and was struck from the classroom. And the state of Tennessee and the several other states passed laws declaring that it was illegal to teach evolution. The Scopes trial, was uh, held in 1925 in Tennessee, where John Scopes was tried for the crime in Tennessee of teaching evolution. Now, part of the animosity toward evolution back in this first period of uh, anti-evolutionism, the banning evolution period, was generated because of the growth of a new form of American Protestantism called fundamentalism. Many people don't realize that the sort of fundamentalist um, biblical inerrancy view uh, that is so common in American Christianity is actually pretty much confined to North America. Uh, you don't find fundamentalism taking hold in Europe and in Great Britain, the other major Christian parts of the world. Um, fundamentalism has since been spread by uh, American missionaries, but this was pretty much a homegrown United States kind of proposition, and it dates from the publication of a series of pamphlets called the Twelve Fundamentals, pictured here in a collection, which were written from about 1911 through about 1918. And this set the stage for this more back-to-basics kind of American Protestantism called fundamentalism, which to a greater or lesser degree over time has looked at the Bible as being literally true. So therefore, when the Bible 
in Genesis talks about a six-day creation of everything in its present form. That is literally true, and evolution clearly, looking at common ancestry of living things, is, is indeed incompatible with that view. But there was more than just fundamentalist religious objection to evolution. Evolution was also associated by many with social Darwinism. And there were a number of, of practices back in the early 20th century, such as child labor, uh, such as exploitation of workers, uh, sweatshops, and so forth, which were justified by some of the robber barons, like uh, Andrew Carnegie, as being true and natural because this is what Darwin had said. Well, of course, Darwin didn't say anything of the kind. It was merely an, uh, an, uh, something we've seen more than once in the history of this country. This was seizing upon a scientific idea to support a specific ideology. But nonetheless, between fundamentalism and between the association of evolution with um, negative social uh, practices like sweatshops and so forth, uh, evolution had a really bad press, and these laws were passed uh, to ban it. And of course, the Scopes trial is iconic in American history. The, the titanic battle between Darrow and uh, Brian, um, the acerbic, um, well, and of course, the uh, uh, absolute uh, media circus that the uh, Scopes trial in, uh, engendered, and the acerbic uh, articles by H.L. Mencken and other reporters poking fun at the uh, conservatism of the Tennessee uh, people, and Europeans uh, collectively raising their eyebrows. Some things haven't changed a whole lot in the uh, last uh, hundred years or so. But I want to call your attention to something that people overlook, and that is that Scopes lost. And these laws banning the teaching of evolution in the three or four states in which they had been passed in the 1920s, these laws stayed on the books and actually were not repealed until 30-plus years later. Now, according to some historians, evolution was quietly removed from high school textbooks uh, after the Scopes trial of 1925. In fact, by about 1930, there were, you, you would be hard-pressed to find any evolution in high school textbooks. And, high, and evolution remained out of those textbooks until approximately <clears throat> the early 1960s. What happened was, in 1958, the Russians put up Sputnik, which was the first artificial satellite, and the United States scientific establishment reeled. The Russians had beat us to space. What had happened? Well. The government decided to pour more money into scientific research and more money into science education. The idea of actually spending money on education is sort of a rarity these days, but this back in the, in the mid to late 1950s, this is something that was decided would, to be a really good idea. And one of the things that happened was that the National Science Foundation funded the preparation of high school biology textbooks that would actually be written by scientists and master teachers as opposed to being produced merely by um, textbook publishers. What a concept. And of course, when the biology group took a look at the extant high school biology books, they were appalled. And they basically just threw them away and started all over again to write from scratch high school textbooks that would mirror what was being taught in college. Now, interestingly enough, you might be interested that Goucher College has a history to share with this. Because the first um, chair of the 
um, biology uh, uh, textbook writing committee, which was the Biological Sciences Curriculum Study, or BSCS, was Bentley Glass, who was a Goucher professor from 1938 to 1946. So you have a piece of this history right here on your own campus. Well, as I say, these uh, professors and um, teachers restored evolution to the textbooks in high school, restored sex and ecology too, by the way. Um, <laughs> the controversial topics did come back into the high school textbooks, and they have been there uh, off and on ever since. Now, what happened was the BSCS textbooks were started being circulated in the 1960s, and they were extremely popular, so the commercial textbook publishers started cloning them, and all textbooks started uh, including evolution. So we really owe the BSCS a great deal of, of thanks for having improved the um, quality of high school te biology textbooks. However, the state of Arkansas still had an anti-evolution law on its books in the late 1960s when the new textbooks included evolution. So what to do? Susan Epperson was a 25-year-old high school biology teacher who was uh, tapped by the Arkansas Education Association to be the plaintiff in a case that would challenge the Arkansas evolution law. And this case became Epperson versus Arkansas. Here's Susan today, uh, still teaching, uh, teaching chemistry in Colorado these days. The Supreme Court ruled in Epperson versus Arkansas that the First Amendment does not permit the state to require that teaching and learning be tailored to the principles or prohibitions of any religious sect or dogma. And the big idea here is that the state has no legitimate interest in protecting any or all religions from views distasteful to them. So just because a particular subject in the curriculum annoys uh, the followers of a particular religion is no reason to ban it. And in fact, it is unconstitutional to do so, which was decided in this very famous case. Now, this was 1968, but really, evolution had come back into the high school curriculum in a big way by 68. In one sense, it was almost you know, late. Um, by the early 60s, evolution was creeping back into the curriculum. and. Something, a pattern that we'll see in, in the discussion of the history of creation and evolution. When evolution comes into the curriculum, that's when the creationists gear up. When evolution is out of the curriculum, the creationists go home and don't bother us anymore. So there's this sort of series of sine waves of evolution in, evolution out, evolution in, evolution out, tracked by activity of creationists, which increases, and then when they succeed, alas, evolution goes away, and so do they. In the early 1960s, a new movement sprang up, which brings us to the second period of our creation and evolution history, the period of creation science. Henry Morris and John Whitcomb wrote a book in 1963 called The Genesis Flood, which was a new um, apologetics approach. This wasn't just arguing that the Genesis Flood was a real historical event, which fundamentalist and biblical literalist Christians believed, but they argued in this book that there were scientific data and theory that would support this on scientific grounds, not just on religious grounds. Creation science was born. And creation science is the second period of the creation and evolution controversy. Now, creation science was, has become, I should say, 
through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and even today, a very, very active movement. Uh, Henry Morris himself is the most, in my opinion, the most important creationist of the 20th century, much more important than William Jennings Bryan. Um, and he founded and ran until his retirement and, and death last year, the Institute for Creation Research in Santee, California. Actually, a larger group than the ICR, oh, I'm sorry, the Creation Research Society is the um, professional journal, so to speak, of the creation science people. But Answers in Genesis up near uh, Cincinnati in northern Kentucky, run by an Australian named Ken Ham, is actually bigger than the ICR. Both of these organizations are quite... Um, um, large, they have multi-million dollar budgets, they have mailing lists in the hundreds of thousands, they produce uh, slick magazines and other uh, material. Um, Answers in Genesis will open its new Young Earth Creationist Museum in um, May of this coming year, a 60,000 square foot museum which is truly going to become the creationist Disneyland, I, I fully expect. Creation science evangelism, um, Kent Hovind of Pensacola, Florida is probably the third largest creationist organization. Unfortunately, uh, Kent is uh, in jail right now because uh, the, um, he, he believed that he didn't have to pay um, uh, uh, Social Security or withhold from his employees and ended up $700,000 in debt to the government and, uh, upon trial. Um, he was uh, convicted, and uh, so creation science evangelism is probably not going to be very active for um, the next 15 years or so. 10 years, I guess, is what he got. <laughs> now, creation science is based upon the Christian theology of special creationism. Special creationism is, of course, the idea that God created, but then all Christians believe God created in some fashion or another. But special creationism has specific ideas about how God created. And in special creationism, God creates pretty much as one would take away from a literal reading of Genesis, that God creates everything in its present form. And this is, this is his subject area as well. This is galaxies and the whole cosmos, um, stars and planets and everything, as well as Earth, as well as the plants and animals on Earth. That's why I say evolution is a is a, um, a field, a subject area that cuts across all of science. So does creation science. Um, everything was created in its present form. So if you were to go back in the past, um, which to the most of the uh, creation science proponents is only about 10,000 years old, um, you would find a universe pretty much as we see it today. When it comes to plants and animals, special creationism sees the production of plants and animals as being according to created kinds. Um, God uh, created uh, male and female of each kind and told them to reproduce after their kind in Genesis. Kinds of organisms are of limited genetic vari uh, variability. You can have evolution within the kind, so you could have a, a dog kind that would be dogs and wolves and jackals and foxes and cape hunting dogs and so forth. You could have evolution within the dog kind, but dogs and bears don't have a common ancestor. Uh, the idea of kinds coming back to common ancestors is anathema. It's not possible within creation science. It's not possible with biblical literalism. Hence, it is rejected. So special creationism is really the idea that um, underscores this creation science. The message of creation science is that evolution is evil. Um, the idea is that if, if, if evolution happened, then you can't believe the Bible. This is their view. 
And if you can't believe the Bible, then there's no God, there's no salvation, there's no reason for us to treat each other well, and that not only will, will children not be saved because they'll lose their faith in God, but we, society will simply break down if evolution is true. Um, the creationist um, literature is full of this iconography of trees of evil, uh, like this one, where you find uh, the branches of this tree, uh, racism, humanism, abortion, Nazism, uh, drug culture, pornography, radical feminist movement, all these... <laughs> all these evils of society, and you see that evolution is the, is the source of all of these evils. And the creation science message here is going to take care of evolution, and therefore all of these evils of society will go away. And again, the reason is because they, they, they truly believe that evolution and, um, and faith are incompatible. If you read the creation science literature, it becomes, uh, they, they talk a lot about something called the two-model approach, where there is only evolution or special creationism. So therefore, all you have to do is disprove evolution, and creationism wins by default. This is illogical. Well, it is, I'm sorry, it is very logical if there's only two possibilities, but that's where the logic falls down, is in the premises. Um, this is not a good syllogism because there's many more choices over here on the special creationism side. Theistic evolution is another Christian view that says evolution happened, but this is the way God did it. If any of you went to Catholic school, this is what you learned. Catholic schools teach theistic evolution. I, I'm convinced that more evolution is taught in Catholic schools than public schools. Um, and I had, a, uh, I had an NCSE member in Texas who deliberately sent his kid to the Lutheran parochial school so that she'd get evolution because he didn't have any confidence that she would get evolution in the public schools. Go figure. Theistic evolution, though, is the position of Catholics and mainstream Protestants. It's the best kept secret in this whole controversy that it's not a dichotomy between special creationism and evolution. Theistic evolution is an alternative, but let's not just be Christian-centric here, because there's a whole lot of other religious views around on this planet other than Christianity, which we kind of forget in the United States, since Christians are numerically the largest group here. Um, there are many other religious views, the uh, world religions as well as tribal religions and historical uh, religions as well, all of which have different versions of how things came to be. Disproving evolution doesn't prove creationism because there's all these other alternatives. So the two-model approach is fundamentally wrong-headed. Now, note in special creationism, in creation science, all creatures are created at one time. Hence, all of the creatures that have ever lived were created as special kinds in the Garden of Eden. So dinosaurs lived together with um, human beings uh, and other prehistoric animals. Um, the, up, the picture at the top here shows feeding animals in the ark. And they're feeding... <laughs> the, 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 this is creationist literature I'm showing you. Some, somebody always says, you're making fun of creationists. No, I'm not. This is from their websites. This is what they believe. I am not making fun of them. I am showing you what they believe. If you laugh, you're laughing on your own time. This is not me. Um, so you, you find Noah and his family feeding the dinosaurs and feeding the horses and the moose at the same time because all of these animals lived 
were created at the same time in the Garden of Eden and all lived simultaneously. Now, one of the positions of the creation science folks is time. The creation science people are very consistent. They realize that if the uh, universe is billions of years old, there's plenty of time for evolution. And of course, in their interpretation of the Bible, the earth is young, so that's all very consistent too. Um, one of the um, uh, points on this flyer here is that dinosaurs and human footprints are found together in Texas. And this is, this is supposedly a refutation of evolution. And indeed, in a third grade science class in um, Illinois a number of years back, this uh, flyer was distributed. Could man have tamed the dinosaur at one time? No, <laughs> but anyway. uh, bulldozers have uncovered <laughs> fossil footprints of men and dinosaur together in the United States and other parts of the world. This shows that man and dinosaur at least lived at the same time. When I was up at the AIG Museum a couple of weeks ago, um, I wish I had gotten a photograph of this. Unfortunately, I didn't. But um, there, they have a picture of a of a um, baby triceratops with a saddle on it. So you know, they're they're really they're really pushing this. Not a stegosaurus, a triceratops. Um, and it's true that in Paluxy, um, the Paluxy River uh, footprints, uh, the Paluxy River Cretaceous limestone in central Texas, you find very good three-toed dinosaur tracks. And you've got lots of footprints there, and it certainly is the case. And it's, uh, over the years, there have been a variety of footprints found in Paluxy, some of them obviously carved. This is not what a footprint looks like. This is a carving, certainly. But then there's some other ones that are somewhat ambiguous. Um, uh, lozenge-shaped impressions in the uh, in this stone. By the way, you do have to you do have to wet these down in order to see them at all. Of course, you can wet them creatively so they look a little bit more like human footprints. But your your photo. I've been down there and I've tried to take photographs and it's really hard. You're photographing white on white, so in order for anything to show up, you do have to wet them in. But here's an example of a supposed man track, as they call them, from the Paluxy River. Now, there's an interesting thing. Notice the scale. This is a three-foot-long footprint. <laughs> it is also at the same depth as dinosaur prints. Now, critical thinkers, what might you surmise from this? You know, is there a hypothesis you could come up with that you could use to explain this? Now, the creationists say, in those days, there were giants in the earth. <laughs> is that the best explanation? is perhaps another explanation that these are merely eroded dinosaur footprints or scour marks. And in fact, geologists have looked at them and have rejected them as being human footprints coexisting with dinosaur prints. Periodically, you find uh, uh, announcements of the um, finding of Noah's Ark or fragments of the Ark. This uh, particular illustration is the supposed resting place of the Ark in mountains in um, in Turkey. And you can see that it looks kind of like this long, kind of boat-like uh, structure. But geologists have examined it, and they describe it as what is called a syncline, which is a perfectly normal geological formation. It is not the resting place of Norm Noah's Ark at all. Now, I can't go into creation science in detail. I won't be able to go into intelligent design in detail. But let me just tell you that the claims of creation science, the scientific claims of creation science, have been examined by scientists. They have been rejected for cause. They have been rejected because the science is really, really bad. 
Yet, young earth creationism cons, uh, continues to thrive and, in fact, is even growing despite its weak science. But the heyday of creation science was the period of the 1960s and 1970s, particularly in the 1970s, when a number of states were encouraged to, to um, consider legislation requiring that if evolution were taught, creation science would be mandated to be taught alongside it. And the state of Arkansas passed Arkansas Bill 590 requiring equal time for creation science and evolution. Now, the plaintiffs, the people who were against the law in uh, um, the inevitable lawsuit to follow the passage of this bill, were largely religious leaders. And I like to point that out to people because this, this seems uh, non-intuitive that the people objecting to the equal time for creationism law would be religious leaders, but they were. And the reason for that is that people belonging to these denominations, well, with the exception of, of Southern Baptists who changed a few years later, but that's okay. Um, uh, groups like Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, Catholics, African Methodist, Episcopal. These groups are not literalist in their theology. They are theistic evolutionists. They are perfectly happy with the idea of evolution taking place and it being part of God's plan. And they did not want kids to be taught Monday through Friday that the earth is 10,000 years old and God poofed everything into existence and then have to straighten them out on Saturday and Sunday. So the major plaintiffs opposing the equal time for creationism laws in Arkansas were religious leaders. And I think that's worthwhile considering. Well, McLean um, uh, was, a, was a full trial, and um, the, uh, the law was struck down by the district court judge, and it was such a devastating decision that it was never appealed. But a similar law was passed in the state of Louisiana, and science teacher Ed Aguilard was the lead plaintiff in, in um, um, Aguilard versus uh, Treen, and then Aguilard versus Edwards. And the Supreme Court in 1987 judged in Edwards versus Aguilard, that the Louisiana equal time law was also unconstitutional and had to be struck down. But there were a couple of little lines, shall we say, in the Supreme Court's decision, uh, in the decision and, and also in, in one of the uh, dissents, or the dissent, which helped to bring about the third period of anti-evolutionism. And this was partly Justice Brennan's um, statement that teachers already possess a flexibility to supplant the present science curriculum with a presentation of theories besides evolution about the origin of life. So the idea of teaching um, alternative scientific theories would, would be perfectly reasonable. And of course, that's correct. Clearly, if there were alternative scientific uh, explanations other than common ancestry, of course a teacher could teach them. You don't need a law uh, a, instructing you to do so. Teachers have enough sense to teach a variety of scientific views. Unfortunately, this was a hypothetical statement because there are no other scientific views. Creation science was an effort, but creation science was a dismal failure. Justice Scalia wrote a dissent to Edwards in which he wrote that the people of Louisiana are quite entitled to have scientific evidence against evolution presented in their schools. So the third period, or the neo-creationist period in which we are right now, 
has two components. The idea of teaching scientific alternatives to evolution, the most important of which is intelligent design, and the idea of balancing evolution with teaching the evidence against evolution. I want to talk about intelligent design first. Creation science um, clearly had some legal liabilities. It, it failed in the courts in the early 80s. It failed in the late 80s in the Supreme Court. And it also had another liability in that creation science would only appeal to biblical literalists. It would never appeal to Catholics. It would never appeal to the majority Christian position because of its reliance upon biblical literalist special creation. So in the early 80s, about the time of McLean, when it was clear that creation science was not going to be a viable anti-evolutionism, a group of conservative Christians set about trying to develop another kind of anti-evolutionism that would not have the weaknesses of creation science. And nobody was more important in this effort than a man named John Buell, who is the head then and still today of a group in Dallas called the Foundation for Thought and Ethics, a Christian ministry there. They produce textbooks. One of the first books that John Buell and his um, um, group produced was a book called The Mystery of Life's Origin, written by Thaxton, Bradley, and Olson, uh, three, uh, two engineers and a scientist. Now, the mystery of life's origin, of course, had to do with the origin of life. And the position taken in this book was that the origin of life was, of course, a very, very tough scientific problem. We all agree with that. But they went beyond that to state that not only was it a difficult scientific problem, and indeed the scientific community does not have a consensus as to how, the, how you can go from inorganic molecules up to that first uh, replicating uh, cell. Um, we have a lot of the pieces, but we don't have agreement as to you know, exactly the whole story. But that the origin of life was categorically unexplainable that not only was it tough, it was unsolvable and we might as well just quit because uh, it, was, it was hopelessly complex. As Dean Kenyon wrote in the foreword to this book, it is fundamentally implausible that unassisted matter and energy organize themselves into living systems. The argument in Mystery of Life's Origin is that to explain the origin of life, you need outside intelligence to produce that first replicating structure. Because the first cell, simple though it may seem to us, is so inordinately and blindingly complex that you had to have something outside. There was no possible natural explanation. This, sound, this is the essence of intelligent design. This was the first book uh, intelligent design proponents consider Mystery of Life's Origin to be the founding document of intelligent design. Uh, although the phrase intelligent design only occurs way back in the, you know, it, it, the, the, the phrase intelligent design was not applied to this view until really the uh, late 80s. But this was the first intelligent design book. It sounded very familiar to most of us. It sounded very much like William Paley's argument from design, which he described in his book Natural Theology. Remember Paley? The guy with the watch? You, you know the Paley story. If you see a watch, you know because of its structural complexity there had to be a watchmaker because things like springs and wires and glass and metal and stuff don't just spontaneously come together to tell time. So you see a watch, there's a watchmaker. Easy. A human artifact means you have to have an artificer. 
You see something in nature that's very complicated, like the vertebrate eye, says Paley. Well, the vertebrate eye consists of all of these interacting parts, a purposeful arrangement of parts in modern-day intelligent design speak, that therefore there had to be a god, because there's no natural explanation for something as complicated as the vertebrate eye. Natural theology was an apologetic, was an argument for the existence of God. It was a theological tract, very popular during the 1900s. Darwin read it, thought it was great. All of his contemporaries read it, which is why when Darwin wrote on the origin of species, he specifically used the vertebrate eye as something that could evolve by the process of natural selection. Because, of course, Darwin's great genius in On the Origin of Species, 1859, was not just showing that common ancestry had taken place, that creatures had descended with modification from common ancestors, but that there was a natural mechanism that could bring about structural complexity. And that natural mechanism was natural selection. And that was the really radical thing about Darwin's work. So the book, um, Mystery of Life's Origin, was the first book to proclaim the ideas of, of uh, intelligent design, but the very first book to use the phrase natural, excuse me, to use the phrase intelligent design was this book of pandas and people. Now, there's something kind of amusing here, uh, because ordinarily, when you are developing a new scientific theory, okay, the first thing you do is you take your ideas to the professional community. You go to your professional um, scientific society. You present a paper. You try to convince people you've got a great new theory. They get convinced that you've got some good ideas. They go out and do the research. They apply your ideas. They come back to the meeting next year. Maybe you have a symposium and you all talk about the success of your research. You get some grants. You investigate this further. You build your theory. Eventually, if you have a good enough theory, and eventually if you uh, argue it well and you've got the data, everybody comes to accept your new theory and you're happy, because that's what science is all about. It's all about building theory. And then it trickles into the textbooks. Intelligent design reverses that process. The very first thing they did was write a high school textbook. Now, this might make you question how serious they were about building a true scientific movement. Because the first thing you do is not try to convince kids in high school of your scientific theory. You try to convince your professional peers, the other biologists, astronomers, geologists, and so forth. But the book of Pandas and People figured very much in a controversy that you might have heard about in the little town of Dover, Pennsylvania, a year or so ago, where the school board uh, passed a requirement that intelligent design had to be taught in the public schools. A group of parents, of course, sued, not wanting their kids taught a religious view as science. And uh, it made quite a few of the uh, popular culture reference. Um, you might have uh, seen the Evolution from Evolution uh, program on The Daily Show. And eventually, after the federal uh, district court trial of six weeks, 40 days and 40 nights, in fact. Um, <laughs> the judge ruled that intelligent design was not science. And the judge also granted uh, costs of $2 million to the school district, which one would have thought would have gotten their attention. As it turned out, the lawyers only requested $1 million. The idea was not to bankrupt the school district, just to send a message, don't do this. During the 
uh, Kitzmiller versus Dover trial in which NCSE uh, acted as an advisor to the plaintiff's legal team, we were able to acquire a series of manuscripts of the book that became Pandas and People. And uh, there's a reason for doing this, so uh, uh, pardon me for being rather didactic here. The very first manuscripts of what became Pandas and People had very creationist-sounding names, like Creation Biology, 1983, Biology and Creation, 1986, Biology and Origins, 1987. Then, in 1987, they changed the, the name to Pandas and People, and there were two 1987 manuscripts. This becomes important later. Uh, we call them here version one and version two. <clears throat> and then the first actual published version of Pandas and People came out in 89 and a revision in 93. One of the first things we did when we got these manuscripts is, being good techies, we scanned them and we started comparing the manuscripts to see what changes had been made. And, and we found a very interesting change had taken place during the course of, of the evolution, as it were, of this manuscript. We searched, we did word counts for creationism, creationist, the idea of uh, the root creationism and cognates. Okay. We did word searches for how frequently did these creationism and cognates occur in these manuscripts. And we also did word searches for how frequently the phrase intelligent design occurred. And the results were quite illustrative. Note that the lines cross between these two 1987 manuscripts. In other words, early versions of the manuscripts had lots of references to creationism, creationist. Later references um, seemed, uh, later uh, manuscripts, that phrase, phraseology disappeared, seemingly to be replaced by intelligent design. Pop quiz, what happened in 1987? Anybody? Edwards versus Aguilard. The Supreme Court striking down what? Creation science. The intelligent design people had enough sense to realize you couldn't produce a creationist book after 1987. So they merely went through and replaced the incidents of creationism with intelligent design. All the while, of course, denying that intelligent design was a form of creationism. Oh no, this is a completely new view, they said. Has nothing to do with creationism. We're not talking about the age of the earth. We're not talking about uh, Noah's flood. We're not talking about all those creationist things. Oh no, we're just talking about the design argument. Well, that's true, but that doesn't mean it's not creationism. And in fact, when we examined um, these manuscripts a little bit uh, further, we found something that was really quite entertaining. Um, in the um, book uh, Creation Biology 1983, I just call your attention to this sentence here. Evolutionists think the former is correct. Creationists, because of all the evidence discussed in this book, conclude that the latter is correct. And this same wording is Biology and Creation 86. Evolutionists think the former is correct. Creationists accept the latter view. And in um, Pandas and People 87.1, the, the first version, indeed, evolutionists think the former is correct, creationists accept the latter view. And in Pandas and People, version 2, 1987, design proponentsist accept... <laughs> illustrating not only the creationist roots, 
of intelligent design, but the hazards of block and paste. <laughs> We've all been there. We actually didn't show this to the judge. You know, we, we, already, we already so stomped this whole point that intelligent design was just reworded creation science that we thought that this would be you know, superfluous and judges don't like their, but I, <laughs> I had to share. <laughs> Indeed, intelligent design is a subset of creation science. It leaves out age of the earth, it leaves out Noah's flood, but everything in intelligent design is also found in creation science. The design argument is a key part of creation science, always has been. There is nothing new in intelligent design. So, very quickly, what is intelligent design? Well, the science of intelligent design is pretty thin. It basically consists of two ideas. One of them expressed by Michael Behe in his book, Darwin's Black Box, and this is the concept of irreducible complexity. The idea that there are some structures in biology, mostly at the molecular level, like the bacteria flagellum, that are so incredibly complicated um, that they simply could not have come about through the Darwinian process of natural selection. Sounds kind of paleon, of course, and that's what it is. Um, the second is a concept developed by uh, William Dembski in his book, The Design Inference, called the Design Inference, or Complex Specified Information, CSI. Uh, this is basically um, the same thing as irreducible complexity, except in terms of probability theory. There are some things that are so improbable, and improbability is a synonym for complexity here, that they could not be explained by natural cause. Um, the intelligent design uh, perspective, especially, let, let's just talk about irreducible complexity. Um, Behe's point, and it's e uh, echoed by the other intelligent design proponents, is that Biochemistry, cell biology cannot explain complicated things like the bacteria flagellum. There's no explanation for the immune system. There's no evolutionary explanation for ABCD, which just makes scientists in this field scratch their head because the literature is just chock full of evolutionary origin of complex features. I mean, you, we, can, you know, we can find article after article describing um, the evolutionary origin of these supposedly unevolvable complex structures. I mean, this is what, you know, we do this five times before breakfast. This is, this is not uh, an unusual uh, uh, field of, of evolutionary biology research. Um, the idea that genetic information cannot be um, cannot be created, cannot evolve. This is Dembski's point, that he has you know, the law of, gen never mind it. Um, you know, again, we have lots and lots of, uh, a whole literature talking about uh, where do new genes come from, where does new genetic uh, information come from. There's whole review articles talking about things like duplication and mobile elements and lateral gene transfer. New information is, is a well-studied problem. But you know, the, the problem is, when an intelligent design or a creation science proponent goes to the general public and says, gaps in the fossil record, or there's no way to, f to have new genetic information, the public goes, wow, I didn't know evolution was in such trouble. It takes a lot longer to show people the literature that that statement is simply nonsense. But this is the, you know, this is the problem that we have here. So the science of intelligent design is pretty thin. And I, I, again, just as with creation science, I want to remind you that 
scientists have examined the claims of intelligent design and have found them wanting. It's not like, it's not like these people have been ignored. Uh, their claims have been examined, they don't hold up, so we move on to something else. They keep reiterating the same claims, alas, but uh, reiteration does not a scientific movement make. Fundamentally, though, what we have with intelligent design is very much the old two-model approach that we saw in creation science, where disproving evolution, instead of proving special creationism, proves intelligent design. There, there is no scientific research supporting intelligent design. All the literature in intelligent design criticizes evolution with the point that if you disprove evolution, therefore, creation, uh, therefore intelligent design is proven. There's nothing in there about what did the designer do and when did he do it. There's nothing in the ID literature about what did the, take the bacteria flagellum, okay? Why did the designer make the flagellum with these 50 proteins? Why didn't he use some other proteins? Why did he do it this way rather than some other way? When did he do it? Um, what was the purpose for having done this? Evolution can answer these questions. Intelligent design cannot. So basically it turns out to be pretty much just an old garden variety uh, form of special creationism. Theologians have also objected to intelligent design for two reasons. One, because it's an example of what in theology is called the God of the gaps argument. That if we have something we don't yet understand in nature, uh, something science has not yet explained, God did it. Well, that's okay, except that what we've learned in the last couple hundred years of science is that a lot of times Science does end up explaining something, and then God has less to do. It diminishes God to keep pulling him out of these gaps, because we, once we find a natural explanation. So for the past hundred years or so, Christian theology has avoided God of the gaps kinds of arguments. Christian theologians tend to reject intelligent design, overwhelmingly reject intelligent design, because it's a return to the old God of the gaps. We don't understand an evolutionary explanation for the bacteria flagellum, therefore the intelligent designer, God, did it. It's not very good theology. Another argument, uh, another theological argument against intelligent design that you'll read in the theological literature is that it implies a very incompetent God. Because consider the implication of the concept of irreducible complexity. Here's a geological column. And here are the dates starting from um, 3.8 billion years ago up until the present. According to the Behe's principle of irreducible complexity, every time you see an irreducibly complex structure, that is when God has intervened. God has to create the bacteria flagellum. God has to create the blood clotting cascade. God has to create this, that, and the other. So first, God creates DNA, because DNA is irreducibly complex. And then God creates the bacteria flagellum, because that's irreducibly complex. And then God creates a whole bunch of other stuff from, that's discussed in the intelligent design literature. And God keeps intervening over and over and over through time, um, as if God couldn't get it right the first time. Uh, so theologians don't like this because it implies either a whimsical God that likes to get in and screw around with life or an incompetent one. And either way, it's not a very good theological position. This, by the way, is uh, referred to as a Christian theology called progressive creationism in which God, you know, the, the earth is old, but God creates progressively through time. 
Um, and if you Google progressive creationism on the internet, you will find uh, that lots of young earth creationists don't like it very much at all. Now, we're talking about neo-creationism. I have been talking about intelligent design. Let's talk, at, finally, about evidence against evolution. This was the uh, position that was suggested in Scalia's dissent, you recall? Now, the evidence against evolution has always been part of anti-evolutionism, right? It was part of creation science. Evidence against evolution is evidence for creationism. The new um, creationism du jour, as it were, that we're facing these days is the argument that, well, we used to say teach evolution but balance it with creation science. And then when that didn't work, we said teach evolution and balance it with intelligent design. And when that didn't work, now we're saying teach evolution but balance it with the evidence against evolution. In all cases, it's bad science. In all cases, it's an effort to leave students with the idea that there's something fundamentally unscientific or wrong or false about evolution with the goal of having the students conclude that therefore God specially created. Leadership of the intelligent design movement moved from the Foundation for Thought and Ethics to an organization called the Discovery Institute's Center for Renewal of Science and Culture in the mid-1990s. And the uh, Discovery Institute um, used to promote the idea in a series of white papers and legal um, uh, law journal articles that it was perfectly legal and proper to teach intelligent design in the schools. In about 2002, they shifted their position to promoting an evidence against evolution position instead, which has a number of euphemisms, such as critically analyze evidence for evolution. By the way, that does not mean critically analyze. That means criticize. Okay. Critically analyze is not really a critical thinking exercise. It means tell students that evolution is crappy theory. That's what this really means. Teach the evidence for and evidence against. Teach the strengths and weaknesses of evolution. And all of these uh, euphemisms here we have seen appear in one or another um, state statute or local statute, local uh, school district statute. Uh, teach evolution is theory, not fact. Teach the full range of views about origins. Well, the full range of views from the scientific standpoint is evolution happened. And we'll argue about the details, but we don't argue about the weather. And of course, teach the controversy. What this is? Well, quite frankly, it's teaching bad science in the name of fairness. What we've seen is the evolution of creationism, from creation science, evolving to intelligent design, evolving into two varieties of the critical thinking approach, shall we say. One, the evidence against evolution, uh, weaknesses of evolution, teach the controversy kind of approach. And the second, to teach all scientific theories. And of course, when you ask them, what exactly do you mean by all scientific theories, you end up with intelligent design. And we've seen this kind of uh, morphing in a variety of states uh, fighting over scientific edu science education standards and of course also in a couple of school districts like Dover and Grantsburg, Wisconsin. So if we look at the history of the creationism evolution contrast, uh, controversy, it's clear that like populations of organisms, creationism evolves in response to environmental pressure. In the case of creationism, the pressure is primarily legal, but also some pressure comes from society. Intelligent design evolved to appeal to a broader portion of American Christians by not relying so much on biblical literalism. 
and those of us concerned about science education and the public, the public understanding of science need to understand this movement and its effects, and hopefully to counter them. Here are some books that I would recommend that you consider uh, to learn more about the creation and evolution controversy and the arguments against some of these positions. This book here, The Counter-Creationism Handbook, is now out in paperback, University of Chicago, uh, California Press. This should be on everybody's shelf. It's a wonderful, wonderful book that has the scientific responses to virtually all of the creation science and intelligent design argu uh, arguments. My book is here. Uh, this is a rather technical, Why Intelligent Design Fails. Uh, Creationism's Trojan Horse by Forrest and Gross is an excellent discussion of the um, social and political aspects of the intelligent design movement, which I didn't have time to talk about. And Intelligent Design, Creationism and Its Critics and Tower of Babel, Robert Pennock's um, excellent books, again, rather more technical and scientific, uh, very quick little um, uh, skinny little book uh, by Glenn Branch and I, uh, Not in Our Classrooms, a, a quick kind of sampler, as it were, of, of why intelligent design is not good, good science. Also, go to our website, ncseweb.org. That's us. If you go to the newsroom, you get this page, which is full of depressing information. You can sort by um, year. Uh, you can sort by state. You can pull up Maryland and see what's going on in your own state. You can also go to the resources page here, and you can go to creationism and intelligent design. Uh, and learn a great deal more about what's going on. And did I mention that it's a membership organization? And you can join. It's cheap and you get a really depressing newsletter. Um, we are ncseweb.org and my colleagues Eric Mickle, Susan Spath, Nick Motsky, Glenn Branch, and uh, Louise Mead are there to answer your questions and hopefully help you understand this um, frustrating but ultimately fascinating creationism and evolution controversy. And thank you so much for coming to But what we have is a, a microphone, and we are doing an audio recording of this for archives. So if people do have questions, we're just going to ask that you step up to the microphone so that uh, everyone can hear it and also so that we can get it recorded. If, if you're leaving, uh, just going to ask if you can try to be a little more quiet so we can have questions and answers. Do you think some of the blame should be put on scientists for not explaining to the common person science more adequately? Because, I mean, if you talk to someone in a language they don't understand, then they feel stupid and they don't want to listen anyways. So... Oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> Coming soon to a, um, to a, a campus uh, auditorium um, uh, lecture um, close to you, or possibly, or possibly on, um, I think actually on television, is a little video called Flock of Dodos, uh, which uh, deals with precisely that question of the failure of the scientific community to communicate clearly to the public about its ideas. Um, I travel a lot around to a lot of 
college campuses, colleges and universities. And one of the things that I do is harangue the faculty in science for not doing a good job teaching science at the college level. We do a lot of, of um, lambasting of high school teachers because they don't do a good job of teaching students. Where did the high school teachers learn their science, boys and girls? From you guys. So, therefore, go thou forth and do likewise. Uh, I've been talking to science faculty here, and the people I've talked to seem to get it, which is very nice. I'm very pleased about that. I think you guys are getting a little better science education than a lot of the people who um, I talk with on, on campuses. But yeah, scientists have to do a better job of explaining scientific ideas clearly, but even more importantly than that, explaining how science works. Uh, science is a way of knowing. How do we think scientifically? Because people don't get it that science is about testing ideas and tentatively accepting ideas that seem to work and then going back and testing them again and tossing out the ones that don't work and keep hammering away at the ones that do work until uh, you refine them and improve them until you get something that everybody can seems to seems to work. Evolution is one of those ideas. You know, um, uh, I was talking with someone today who talked about why don't people believe in evolution? <laughs> I don't believe in evolution. You, would you like to ask a yeah. question? Uh, is this on? Mm -hmm. I know I went to high school a long time ago, but I was wondering when did the tree th theory start coming out? Because I don't remember being taught that at all. Well, trees are what evolution is all about. Um, right. It's nothing new. Uh, I think a lot of people got evolution as this sort of great chain of being idea. And that, that it's never been that. It's never been that. And now you're all saying, didn't she just say I d she doesn't believe in evolution? And I'm going to go and pick that up right now because you're, you're not going to listen to anything else that's going on until I explain what I mean by that. And what I mean by that is that I don't believe in evolution any more than I believe in cell division or any other scientific theory. You accept evolution because it's the best explanation we've got for why you have this huge diversity of organisms out there and why you have all these similarities and differences in biochemistry and anatomy and embryology and all the rest of the stuff. Evolution, common ancestry, makes biology make sense. And we accept it because it really, really works. If somebody comes up with a better idea next week, cool. That's going to be really fun. Just imagine the research that's going to be uh, opened up if somebody comes up with a new idea other than common ancestry. It's not a belief. It's not a belief. But it really works. So, you know, we tend to use it until it doesn't work anymore. Sir. Hi. Uh, one of the things I don't think you mentioned was the fact that this so-called controversy about evolution and creation is generated mostly by a very small group of people who have very narrow goals. And in fact, it, th the whole program parallels the anti-global warming uh, strategy that Exxon buys a bunch of people to say things and creates some so-called controversy when really there isn't a controversy at all in the scientific community. But they get a lot of publicity and they generate a lot of noise. And um, I'm wondering if you might comment about, do you notice now in this our current epoch of the controversy, is it more intense or intensified than it has been in these previous cycles? Well, of course, what, what the National Center for Science Education has done for 20 years is monitor this controversy, but also to help people out at the grassroots, the people in Dover, the people in 
Kansas, the people in other parts of the country who are wrestling with this problem and, and give them the information that they need to, to solve these problems. We don't like going to court. I mean, we, we don't go to court at all. I mean, very, very rarely. We try to solve these problems politically and through education. And we've had a lot of, uh, we, there's been a real uptick in business, okay? <laughs> we don't, we want to put ourselves out of business. We just assume this not be going on. But we've had a lot of work in the last four or five years. And the reason for that is um, two events. One, the establishment of science education standards, which was a really good idea. Um, the idea started under Bush 1, by the way. The first President Bush set about the effort to try to develop um, standards for science and history and so forth, uh, the academic disciplines for the K-12 level, so that we would get some, some more homogeneity of education, because our, our education in this country is such an incredible patchwork. This was a very good idea. Then came No Child Left Behind, which teachers refer to as No Child Left Untested. Um, the tests, which happen early and often uh, for, for school kids, are based on the state standards. Therefore, if evolution is in the state standards, they've got a really good chance of being tested on. If they're tested, they're going to be taught. So if you don't want your kid to be taught evolution, you attack the science standards. So for the last five years or so, every time science education standards have cycled in in a state for revision or consideration. There's been a big fight over evolution. We've had a lot to do. So we've seen a lot more of uh, anti-evolution activity in the last four or five years because, like I said, um, there, there's the sine wave when evolution comes into the curriculum, the creationists really gear up. And now, of course, we're fighting two fronts. It's not just the traditional creation science, but they're augmented by the intelligent design crowd. Your earlier comment, though, was, was interesting. You, you related creationism to global warming and other kinds of political or politicized science. And there has been um, a great deal more press on the politicization of science in the last few years. Um, certainly, um, uh, science can be politicized at any time and has been in the past, but it seems to be unduly politicized uh, during the last six years not to make a political statement especially, but nonetheless. Um, fundamentally, I see the problem as when an ideological view makes you blind to the empirical evidence, that's a problem. Um, that is the problem with creationism, where the ideological view is conservative religion, um, making classic case, Henry Morris, another young earth creationist, making them blind to the evidence that the earth is old, that evolution has taken place, and so forth. In the case of something like global warming, uh, the ideology is capitalism. Ideologies can make you, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with ideologies. We all have ideologies. Freedom is an ideology, that's a biggie, that's an important one for most Americans. We all have ideologies, but ideologies should not make you blind to empirical evidence. You need to have that balance. Sir. Uh, sort of a segue from what you just mentioned about ideologies. Recently, there's been a spate of articles and books uh, by Sam Harris and a recent book by Dawkins, articles in, I think, the cover story of Newsweek a few months ago, I think, on Is God Dead? Might have been, I don't remember exactly. But it's sort of a, crit a critique of religion and fundamentalism in general and using uh, the argument against creationism as, as an example of what happens when you follow these various faiths and ideologies and such. 
do you for do you perceive of this sort of uh, higher profile of a rational um, atheist, if for lack of a better word, atheist movement is having any effect at all on this argument on creationism versus evolution? I think the um, the article that you were talking about in Newsweek was that um, uh, Richard Dawkins and um, Francis Collins uh, having a dialogue together. I think it's perfectly fine if Richard Dawkins wants to say, here is science, here is evolution, therefore, you know, I'm an atheist and I believe that, uh, you know, religion is ridiculous. I think it's perfectly fine for Francis Collins to say, here is science, here is evolution, and this reinforces my Christian theological views, and you know, I think everybody should um, embrace my ideology. I, that's perfectly fine. Both of those are perfectly fine. What I would object to is either of them, or anybody else, saying, here is science, here is evolution, and therefore you are compelled, the logic is unassailable, and you have to come to conclusion A or conclusion B. Because I think that's overstepping what you can say with science. I'm a non-believer myself. I'm over there with uh, Dawkins in terms of not believing in God. Richard and I have a profound disagreement on uh, whether um, science compels you to a particular conclusion. We both have come to a similar conclusion, but I don't believe that science compels you to that. Because I know too many intelligent theists who look at the same data that I look at, but they bring somewhat different presuppositions into the calculation, and they come up with the Francis Collins kind of conclusion rather than the conclusion I come up with. I think that's perfectly fine. I want to set science aside as an extremely valuable way of knowing about nature. But I look at science as being a limited way of knowing, and it's limited in two ways. It's limited to just explaining the natural world. Science isn't going to tell you, you know, your relationship to God or your relationship to the ancestors or any other kind of supernatural force. And science is also limited, in the second way, to explaining through natural cause. And the reason for this it's called methodological naturalism. The reason to limit science to natural cause has to do with the nature of science itself. What is science? It's a way of testing your explanations about nature. And you test those explanations about nature by going out to nature and you set up some sort of an experiment or a test. You hold constant certain variables and you vary others and you see whether your explanations work. And if it doesn't, you go back and try again. If there is an omnipotent force in the universe, how can you possibly hold constant its efforts? God, stay out of the test tube. doesn't work. You can't do that. You cannot control for the effort, for, to, for the effects of any supernatural power. So therefore, you can't have any tests of whether God acts or doesn't act. You can't test whether God designed the flagellum. You can't test whether uh, God uh, created the blood clotting cascade or anything else. Because you can't hold constant a supernatural force, by definition. So because science comes to its conclusions through testing, and because you, testing requires control of, of variables, you can't control God. God's outside of science, which means that Henry Morris is wrong when he says science proves creationism, and it means Richard Dawkins is wrong when he says science proves atheism. Whether there's a God or not, I think, is a first principle. I think it's something that you come to. Science may inform your view, but science cannot 
compel that view because science doesn't have the tools. Anyway, that's the way I feel about it. One last question. Um, I'm Sarah, I'm from Georgia, and I came from a school that was private and um, it was run by one of the fundamental, fundamentalist groups that you mentioned, which was Church of Christ. And I didn't get evolution in my school and my brother's still at that school and he's been coming to me with these um, attacks that the creationists and the intelligent design have been um, re recently circulating. And I wanted to know the best way to teach him evolution or if there are any books that I could show him because he can't understand the, the complexity of this sometimes. That is a, that's a question I get asked a lot. And I appreciate you asking it because it gives me a chance to tell everybody a, a good answer. Um, I suspect that your brother and other conservative Christians who are you know, concerned about this issue um, is not going to be convinced if you just pile the science higher. Um, I, I think science is very important in this controversy. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. I suspect your brother needs to give himself permission to listen to the science before the science is going to be persuasive. He's got his fingers in his ears right now because what he's been told is that he's got to choose and that if he makes the wrong choice, he loses really big. He loses salvation, he loses the support of his family and friends, and he loses really big. So of course he's going to be anti-evolutionary. You know, who wouldn't? Unfortunately, that's a false choice. But the only people who can convince him of that are other conservative Christians. So I suggest that you go to a very useful website, which is the website of the American Scientific Affiliation, which you can find with all the W's and all that, ASA, God, I can't write worth a damn, ASA3.org. Uh, the American Scientific Affiliation is a group of evangelical Christians, and use that term, because that's, that's a term of art here. These are not, you know, these aren't Unitarians or something. These are evangelicals, okay? <laughs> these are serious, born-again Christians, real Christians. Um, these are evangelical Christians uh, that back in the 1960s, really, um, decided not to take an institutional stand on creationism and evolution. They wanted to be an open place where all Christians, all evangelicals could debate this issue. Uh, that's actually when Henry Morris and Duane Gish and the other young earthers hiked. So by and large, the uh, ASA is largely a theistic evolution group. Some, some progressive creationists and a smattering of, of ideas who are kind of look suspiciously. But um, what's important about this site, tell your brother to go there and just start lurking in some of the listservs. Just, they, they post all the listservs up there. Just tell, tell them to go and read some of the stuff on evolution written by fellow born-again Christians, okay? There's a great one there on transitional fossils. Okay? <laughs> great one on transitional Great one there on Age of the Earth. Um, but also, you know, th these are evangelical Christians who, like him, are wrestling with this issue. But a lot of, you know, a whole lot of them accept evolution, and they can say to your brother and anybody else, I'm a born again, but evolution's okay with me, and here's how I do it. And that's what he needs to hear before he listens to the science. Because he's not going to, you know, the fingers are, gonna, are still going to be in the ears until he gives himself permission to listen. Thank you so, so, you know, science is necessary, but not sufficient to solve this problem. Thank you so much for coming to hear me tonight. I appreciate it.
hear me talk tonight.